Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today's Monday, August 20th, 2007, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an exciting opportunity to discuss an article published in the August 2007 issue of Critical Care Medicine. This is focusing on cost-effectiveness of prolonged mechanical ventilation, entitled An Economic Evaluation of Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation. Our discussants today are Christopher Cox, MD, as well as Shannon Carson, MD. Dr. Cox, the lead author of the article, is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University, and Dr. Carson is an associate professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. The reference for the article is Critical Care Medicine, 2007, volume 35, number 8, page 1918. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being with us today on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, I thought we'd begin uh, by allowing you to paint a little bit of a background scenario, if you could, uh, and I'll let you start, I guess, Dr. Cox, to talk about some of these cost-effectiveness analyses. I'm not an expert in this, but it was very clear to me. Uh, I know these studies are important. Uh, some of the particular techniques that are used can be somewhat confusing, so maybe if you could spend a few minutes uh, sharing with the, uh, the audience, sort of as you described throughout the paper, when does something stop becoming cost-effective, and, and how are those determinations made? Sure. Um Maybe I could start by saying what cost-effectiveness analyses aren't, and sometimes that's more helpful. Um, I think the connotation of these studies uh, to maybe the uh, average reader is that, you know, this is sort of trying to push some agenda or it's uh, looking to contain costs or to assist in rationing services or something like that. Um, when in actuality, they really aren't. Um, they're just another tool that a person can use in decision-making and or policy-making, uh, which may or may not be the same thing. And it, in essence, the way I think about it is that um, cost-effectiveness analysis is sort of, it's a type of study that uh, attempts to demonstrate uh, the comparative value of um, uh, management or strategy or intervention um, and, um, you know, so value is sort of the, the key word here. Um, there was a, a gentleman in the New England Journal not too long ago, Stephen Wolf, who uh, had this quote where he said basically that uh, this type of analysis can uh, help society pursue interventions in proportion to the ability of those interventions to improve outcomes. So I think that's a kind of a more helpful way to look at it. And just to just to interject, the, the concept yeah. here is that uh, society is sort of making decisions as to what is if what is isn't if uh, because there is not 
there are not infinite resources. And it, this has come up in a couple of my other podcasts where there's yeah. the different perspective from the bedside clinician representing the patient versus a study like this that's really taking the perspective of, as you said, either the payer or society as a whole. Right. So uh, even though some of these boundaries get blurred a little bit too, and it, and, and I don't think they're necessarily a tool that... Uh, is completely disconnected from the bedside physician. In that particular uh, relationship with that individual patient, you know, perhaps so, but kind of in the, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, all of these uh, factors uh, directly or indirectly can affect decision-making and, and our discussions with families and, and sort of framing issues like that. But, but you're exactly right. I mean, there, there are, I think, finite resources at, at some point. Um, and basically what you do is you, you have two interventions or strategies, and uh, the main parts of, uh, of the outcome are com- comparing costs, so you know, sort of subtracting the costs of intervention A from B, and also you're interested in the benefits of, or the comparative benefits of, the, of these two interventions, and you, know, you subtract the effectiveness of A from B, so you have that difference in cost divided by the difference in effectiveness, be it ventilator-free days, survival, what have you. I mean, we looked at survival over the course of a lifetime. Um, so you have then your uh, it's it's inter- incremental cost divided by incremental benefits or effects, and you, that will give you cost per life year. Um, and the way you get quality-adjusted life years or qualies is. Uh, by uh, adjusting that uh, survival by some measure of quality of life, um, which can be particularly important in studies of the critically ill who can be pretty debilitated, and certainly in the case of prolonged ventilation. So, so that's kind of how you, you come to that, uh, our main uh, metric, the cost per quality adjusted life here. And uh, to get back to your uh, initial question about, well, how do we look at this in sort of the the galaxy of interventions or whatnot? Um, I think classically uh, providing hemodialysis is what everyone uh, typically comes to uh, compare different uh, interventions to, and that has historically been about fifty thousand dollars per quality adjusted life year gained. And um, you know there have been various other uh, important interventions that have been you know, talked about over the years, uh, everything from flu vaccine, which is cost-saving, to, you know, I guess uh, we're all familiar with lung volume reduction surgery, which can be also quite pricey, you know, between 100 to maybe quarter of a million dollars uh, per quality-adjusted life year. So, But I remember something like uh, like percutaneous coronary interventions was, was low in another benchmark, right? Or Sure, sure. And uh, the, the other uh, intervention that's been getting a lot of uh, press lately is uh, implantable uh, defibrillators. Um, and uh, there have been a number of uh, really well-done analyses looking at uh, the benefits of that. Um, so, yeah, a, a lot of the cardiology literature is very strong uh, in this area. And where do they fall approximately, or can you quote that? Yeah, it's that... That um, uh, actually, uh, uh, one of our co-authors, Jillian um, Sanders, has done some work in this area, and you know, uh, it typically ranges from about uh, thirty to about fifty thousand dollars per quality-adjusted life year. I think <laughs> something like that. So, in the same ballpark as dialysis. 
Yeah, exactly. If not, a a little bit uh, of a better value. But yeah, yeah. And Dr. Carson, I know you've had a Dr. Carson, you've had a long-standing interest in the mechanical ventilation part of this. Why don't you uh, take a few minutes if you'd like? Oh, well, good. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, um, I agree um, with Chris exactly as um, you know what these mean and how you interpret them. You know, kind of from the societal perspective, but then you know parts of that do uh, um, leak down to the bedside and you know an actual decision making. And I think more important. Um, in models like these, particularly this one, then what is the final number? What is the cost per quality adjusted life year for the base case or the average patient? I think more importantly is, you know, you get a sense from the study overall that uh, prolonged chemical ventilation is not cost effective for uh, some patients or for many patients. And um, what the model does is it uh, accounts for uh, aspects of patient care that uh, have particularly large effects on cost effectiveness. So, for example, um, you know, from this model, we gather that um, cost of the acute hospitalization is really a very large factor, as opposed to cost after discharge and. Um, uh, and, uh, and other factors. So if we wanted to make um, care for prolonged mechanical ventilation patients more cost-effective, where should we direct our efforts? Well, in, during the acute hospitalization. And there are some practical things that we can do to, to think about that. You know, a lot of, patient, a lot of hospitals have not yet um, designed units to uh, lower the level of care for these patients. A lot of them remain in the acute care intensive care uh, care unit setting with one-to-one or one-to-two nursing when many of these patients don't require that level of care for much of their hospitalization. Right. So, they may have single organ failure, but the single organ happens to be respiratory failure. Right. And they're not on pressors and they are got a trach, a stable airway. And so do they still need to be in intensive care unit? Um, could they be moved to a level, a lower level of care, either outside of the hospital, like a long-term care hospital, or um, uh, that which is not available to many hospitals, or to a unit within the hospital that has lower intensity of care and can generate a lot of cost savings, probably without any detriment to patient outcome. Maybe uh, can help patient outcome in a few areas as you focus. Uh, or tailor care to the unique prolonged mechanical ventilator patient. So that, I think, is the biggest benefit of, of a model such as these. You can look at the whole, you know, uh, the whole big picture, a year in the life of these patients, and identify areas where we can change practice and improve cost effectiveness. Um, I have a I had sort of a two-part follow-up question to that really more about how these are designed. Why do you have to compare the intervention with something else since you're coming up with an actual cost effectiveness or a quality? Why can't you just say this is how much it costs to do uh, prolonged mechanical ventilation and then compare that with other interventions to see if it's cost effective? And then along those lines, maybe if you could talk a little bit about where you get uh, some of the data, is it all a theoretical model, or are there actual patient uh, patients involved? Okay. Um, so uh, uh, essentially, uh, the, the, in, in prioritizing uh, interventions or, or uh, management strategies or something like that, um, 
just the, the historical uh, way to do this has been looking at uh, the incremental costs and benefits. And um, until you uh, actually establish uh, the incremental aspect of it, it's it's sort of more difficult to uh, put that into a, a, a sort of a mode of, of comparison to, to other uh, studies that have been completed. And and in sort of uh, contributing to that, uh, the assumptions uh, I think that you're hinting at and, you know, how theoretical is this and, you know, what exactly uh, is this built on, that I agree this is kind of important to go over. So we actually um, use a lot of the data that we used for our study came from uh, Luke Chilleri's, uh quality of uh, life in, uh, among the mechanically ventilated aged population uh, that he did a, a few years back, which uh, um, I think to, to date in America anyway, I think it's been the, the biggest cohort study of ventilated patients that also use quality of life uh, measures as well as survival. And so we, we were able to... Um, use the data from, you know, about uh, 820 patients, as I recall, uh, to, to uh, inform some of our uh, data inputs, as well as sort of the most appropriate literature that we could find. We used data, some data from support on, um, you know, quality of life and um, some other uh, really, what we thought anyway, were pretty high-quality studies. So, it's a very complicated issue, and you know, no one has really done the study looking at uh, what are the p- particular uh, costs and outcomes of these people in each uh, uh, sort of island they hop to uh, over the course of uh, a year. You know, f- for instance, the hospital to the LTAC to the SNF to the rehab institution, and so we we felt like we kind of had to use uh, different data sources, and we, we just did our best to choose what we thought were the most reasonable. And a lot of it came down to Luke Chilleri's data and Medicare data, actually, which we thought were kind of universally uh, uh, applicable. And um, so, so, yes, it was somewhat theoretical, but it was structured on... Um, what the what I think all could agree uh, the typical course for this population actually is, and uh, so that's essentially how we did things. And basically, then, so to just to take one step back, so in all of these studies, then that that, that do cost effectiveness, the the implantable defibrillators or the dialysis, they're all compared with either not with not doing the intervention. Is that where they come up with these numbers? Where they'll say fifty thousand dollars per quality adjusted life year? Yeah, or or um, a very reasonable uh, alternative, uh, for instance, uh, defibrillator placement versus amiodarone, or okay. uh, dialysis. You know, some are you know dialysis versus no dialysis. But you know, again, to I guess uh, uh, embellish a bit of what uh, uh, Shannon said, you know, we are not comparing. We didn't compare. You know, for instance, two strategies for managing prolonged ventilation. We didn't compare two modes of ventilation or something like that. I mean, we're we're coming up with these numbers based on comparing prolonged ventilation to withdrawal of care. I mean, this is a, a pretty dramatic comparator, and uh, and still the incremental costs uh, were were quite high. So it is a 
pretty sobering bottom line that that we come to, you know, no matter no matter how you look at it, I think. Was there a lot of uh discussion or argument about coming up with the comparator group in this particular study? Sure. It was sure. Um, you know, as Chris said, you, you you're you're going to do either one thing or another, and so many of these studies are incremental, you know, cost effectiveness um, studies, and the increment here was how much more expense, how much more cost effective is it to continue caring for these patients versus withdrawal support at a certain time, and uh, since definitions of prolonged ventilation tend to run into the 14 to 21-day range of being on the ventilator after acute illness, um, what's the alternative to continuing to care for these patients for a year or more? Well, the alternative is uh, withdrawal of support, if, um, which is a real clinical scenario, right? Um, before the tracheostomy is placed, um, the patient's family surrogates, uh, the decision makers, as it were, uh, decide, okay, is this appropriate? Is this patient likely to survive? Does this patient want to survive? What's the quality of life likely to be? So that's a, a real clinical uh, scenario and, um, uh, in, in itself. Uh, the the um, model itself is a bit... Um, theoretical, as Chris says, but the theoretical comparison is is a real clinical scenario. The alternative to continued management of prolonged mechanical ventilation is, um, you know, withdrawal of support, which happens, you know, not infrequently for for these patients. And let me take the last few minutes of the interview and and read here my question, too, on the talking points and give you a a chance to respond. We'll start with you, Dr. Carson. So again, and and please correct me if I got this wrong, but I think I got it right. So you found that providing prolonged mechanical ventilation, so and then defined here mechanical ventilation greater than or equal to 21 days with tracheostomy uh, placement to the, uh, quote, base case patient, which was this hypothetical 65-year-old man, woman, cost $55,460 per uh, life added and $82,411 per quality adjusted life year. So, and then importantly, as you emphasize throughout your paper, when you looked at two specific subgroups, the first was that if your age was greater than or equal to 68, that number shot up to $100,000 per quality. And if your predicted uh, one-year mortality was greater than 50%, uh, the, the number was also uh, very high at that point, I think also greater than $100,000. But uh, you can go over that at this point if you'd like. So um, so that's correct. That kind of sums up um, the, the main outcomes of the study. Uh, but then as we talk about what do you do with that information, well, again, what I do with it is I recognize that um, uh, at least, you know, by this model, um, you know, continue care for patients for some subgroups of patients with requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation is not terribly cost effective by um, uh, current standards. So, what do we do about that? Well, we recognize that part of the reason that for elderly patients or patients with many comorbidities it's not cost effective is because they don't survive very long at all. And that's information that we need to share with. Um, uh, patients or their more typically their surrogates to help them understand that uh, this is difficult and long and outcomes often are not good, particularly in specific situations. As I said, with you know many 
comorbidities or persistent severe acute illness. The other thing to recognize um, why cost-effectiveness may not be so good is that care is very costly, particularly in the acute care hospital, and what ways can we um, uh, improve costs for these patients in the acute care setting and start thinking about systems-based ways to, to address that. That doesn't compromise uh, patient care. And there's a lot of literature, a lot of very good examples in the literature of hospitals that have been able to do that well. And uh, Dr. Cox, would you like to follow up sort of on the, on the key summary of, of what I thought were, were what you were trying to emphasize as sure. the important conclusions? Sure. I'm, the, the important context here is that this group of patients, um, even though they're only uh, about 100,000 uh, new prolonged, ventila uh, prolonged ventilated patients uh, each year, this is a, a, a $20 billion group, uh, and they rank the first in cost per patient. Um, so, and as Shannon said, uh, a lot of the outcomes are uh, quite poor. So trying to understand, um, uh, quantify exactly uh, the value of uh, giving this service to, to these folks is, is pretty important. And I think what we can take away from this, um, again, to reiterate some of what Shannon just said, is that, you know, number one, focusing on the acute care venue is very important. Uh, number two, that uh, how LTACs figure into this and the, the actual uh, cost that they contribute to the overall uh, um, issue are a little bit suspect and that uh, shifting... Uh, this patients, is long-term uh, acute care, right? Long -term. Yeah, long-term acute care. That, uh, you know, rapid transfer out to these units may not uh, actually be uh, the best way to improve value, and that's an area that needs more study. And also that uh, given what we've found and given uh, the um, high-risk, if you will, uh, groups, uh, the elderly and the people with uh, particularly poor uh, predicted outcomes, that we just need to uh, think about how we discuss these issues with uh, families and patients in, in that setting and, you know, try to improve our communication quality and, and really try to uh, inform them uh, as, you know, we contribute to that decision-making process and, you know, try to go over what exactly are the goals of care here and, um, you know, just make sure uh, that that dynamic is, uh, is improved and informed, I guess you could say. So... Um, I think these are the main points that came out of this uh, analysis. And let me uh, ask two questions, and I'll let either of you take it. It doesn't matter to me. So one is the concept of, of concerns about ageism, because I know, I guess, Dr. Carson, I believe you've written a lot about this. Uh, when, when there are a lot of sepsis articles that were coming out a few years ago with activated protein C, focusing on the fact that they're... Uh, that, that patients with severe sepsis syndrome should actually be treated aggressively because although patients may be older, that they can actually survive their initial bout of, of sepsis. And yet an article like this is, is concerning because here is an example where as age increases, the chances of, of uh, the, certainly the cost effectiveness continues to go down, if I, if I understood it right. And the second thing is maybe if you could both make some conclusions about how this, it seems to me that this would translate well into policy where you can look and say, look, this has been looked at at the national level with a reasonably uh, with, a, with a sophisticated analysis, and it may not make sense to be 
utilizing these resources here where they may not be associated with, with reasonable outcomes? Or, or you, you must have thoughts on this. So with regard to age, uh, we, you're right. We had to be very careful and not just look at a single number in a vacuum and walk into a patient's room and go to the bedside and base decision-making upon that single number. That's absolutely inappropriate. But the bottom line is, you know, age is a... Uh, marker for advanced comorbidities, poorer physiologic reserve, um, and just uh, decrease life expectancy in general. And these models are heavily dependent on you know, life expectancy, and older patients have shorter life expectancies, ill or, or not. So as clinicians, we can't get focused on the number age, but we have to look at everything that goes with age. What is this patient's physiologic reserve? What, um, how many comorbidities and how severe are those comorbidities um, for this patient? And uh, uh, so if we don't even look at the number, if you focus on those issues, those issues are going to be worse in patients who happen to be older. And as clinicians, that's what we need to be looking at. As policy goes, um, you're right. There are some uh, um, items or issues from the study that um, I think uh, are relevant to policymaking. Just as one example, uh, I wonder if Medicare should um, uh, give hospitals incentives for establishing lower-cost units to um, manage these patients and give uh, hospitals incentives for providing good post-discharge care and placement such that hospital readmissions for these patients, which is extremely high, um, can be reduced. So I think Medicare could realize some significant uh, cost savings by incentivizing or assisting hospitals with um, uh, ways to provide more cost-effective interventions for these patients. Yeah, or or even uh, to reduce the incidence of prolonged ventilation itself uh, by, again, emphasizing just those very critical uh, quality indicators and future quality indicators of, of critical care uh, that, that Shannon mentioned earlier, you know, uh, you know, uh, Good glucose control, daily awakening, things like that, things that have certainly been shown to, uh, you know, uh, reduce the incidence of prolonged ventilation. And uh, that's going to be another thing, hopefully in the future, that will, uh, you know, become an important thing that uh, maybe becomes part of the incentive package, I suppose. So. Well, uh, given the uh, recent articles that are coming out now in the New York Times and others about uh, Medicare no longer paying for medical yeah. errors, uh, yeah. and as clinicians who help take care of patients when these medical errors may have already occurred, we, we certainly do need to keep our eyes and ears open for these kinds of things. Um, would either yeah, of you... we would not advocate non-payment as incentive. <laughs> I don't think we would uh, support that. However, I think there are other ways that um, payers can um, incentivize uh, hospitals and physicians to provide excellent exactly. care. Exactly. Um, and uh, uh, that that would be uh, effective. Yeah, incentive versus penalty, I think, is a key right. phrase right. here. Well, I guess we should uh, just uh, do a new, another podcast on that particular issue uh, soon as well. Um, anybody want to make some uh, final comments on this article? Uh, sure. I, I guess just to, to uh, wrap up uh, uh, our analyses, um, again, we uh, evaluated, we compared the uh, 
providing prolonged ventilation versus uh, withdrawal of care. And, and essentially, we found that in the base case patient, it was within reasonable bounds of uh, uh, cost effectiveness. Um, however, uh, those with a low likelihood of one year survival and uh, the elderly uh, fared less well and had costs per quality adjusted life here that were uh, a good deal outside the bounds of, I guess, normal accepted or societally accepted cost effectiveness. Um, and to add, uh, Dr. Cox and I and um, other colleagues of ours at uh, UNC Duke and other um, centers are doing a lot of work now on helping to uh, come up with uh, more objective ways to identify patients who are least likely to survive, um, either short-term or long-term, after mechanical ventilation, as a way ultimately to um, help physicians with communication with surrogates. Sometimes when you've been working with a patient for three weeks, things aren't so clear in terms of prognosis. Um, we're coming up with ways to uh, make prognosis a bit more uh, 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 clear. That was a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. It was something I also wanted to emphasize in that, yes, you did clearly emphasize that in your article and that more objective ways of determining who is in that upper 50th percentile of predicted one-year mortality is, is absolutely crucial. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you both for joining us today. Today we have been speaking uh, with uh, Dr. Christopher Cox and Dr. Shannon Carson. Uh, they've recently completed an economic evaluation of prolonged mechanical ventilation, and I'd like to thank you both again for joining us today. Great. Thanks. This concludes our podcast for August 20th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join your colleagues February 2nd through the 6th, 2008 in Honolulu, Hawaii, USA for SCCM's 37th Critical Care Congress. Bring the entire family for this special Congress, which will combine learning with ample leisure and tour opportunities, making the 2008 Congress one you will not soon forget. You won't want to miss such highlights as the modified schedule, pre-Congress courses, Hopper Pass, casual dress code, the post-Congress event on Kauai, and more. The Society's 2008 Congress is not just a meeting, it's an experience. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org.